my name is Dan Brown. I am here today again with another A Lens A Day Conversations about Information Architecture. And today it is my great privilege to talk to the magnanimous Mags Hanley. Mags, it's so nice to see you. How are you? It's the same with you, Dan. As we were saying to each other, we usually only get to see each other once a year. I will see you then. And now, Here as we, we you know, the, the thought that I'm going to actually be in, well, with the borders closed in Australia, yeah. I will be in the US for maybe another year. So this is fantastic, just catching up via Zoom. Um, so let's talk, uh, I mean, we've been going to IA conferences since there have been IA conferences. So let's talk process. Uh, you mentioned that you're you're teaching a master class in information architecture. Maybe you can help us uh, as we're talking about process. Uh, from your perspective, how has IA process evolved since those early days? As we've been, you know, when we were thinking about IA back in the late 90s, and now as we think about IA now, 20 more plus years later, what has changed? What is, how, how have you changed how you're approaching it, how you're teaching it, uh, and how people need to understand it? I think where I have changed is when, so when I first started practicing IA, which was in 1998 at an intranet in Australia, and then I moved to the US to work with Lou and Peter in 1999, though I was doing IA-ish stuff before then, it was we were making it up as we go along and it was so tied to the whole UX process what we would now call UX IA was not something separate it was the information uh, it was the process and now when I look at it it has become a specialist subject and that specialist subject is known by very very few people and so therefore, when I start to teach and look at the process, I actually start with process. I sit there and say, do you know how to scope a project? Do you know how to come up with what the methods are? Do you know how, to, how long this is going to take? Do you know how that interacts with the other elements and the other disciplines, whether it is uh, user experience disciplines or engineering and product? And I sit there going, oh, every time going, oh, should, I, should I actually teach them this? And it feels a bit boring to start with. And then at the end of the class, people go, oh, that's why you taught us process up front. Yes, that's why I taught you process and I gave you project plans up front. The other bits that have struck me as this is my second round of teaching this, as well as I've taught this to particular groups in organisations, is that the majority of practitioners who are coming to me have no knowledge whatsoever of how to do this. They don't know why they do testing. They don't know why they do a card sort. They don't know why they do um, a tree path test. They don't know why they do free listing. They know it is a technique. They suspect it's a technique they need to use. They use it without getting the results they want. And the other bit, and so I do teach navigation, classification, content, and search. Search blows their mind when I teach that people can actually design every single part of search, not just an interface, that blows their mind. And so I go through that whole process and I sit there and they, they've never gone into this depth before, ever, about how to do this. And then the other two bits, because I know I'm, I'm riffing, the first one is um, that people don't understand uh, how to, the models around it 
And I can't bring all of the models. And I went back into all of my information science models to, so that people could understand how people make decisions when it comes to information. And they just, no one knew about that sort of stuff. And so just bringing those mental models, and this is old stuff. This is stuff from, some of this can be from the 70s and 80s and 90s. And you bring that in way before the web. And they're just going, oh, okay, okay. Let that use that as a lens to understand how people are looking at information and make decisions about it. Uh, and that really, really is, is really interesting to realize they just don't have that. Wow, what is the, um, what do you think is so surprising to them about that stuff? I mean, they're coming in blank with not with none of that background, which I guess I would assume, right, if they're sort of showing up to learn about information architecture. But why do you think it's so surprising for them? Well, uh, and I, I don't think it's going to be surprising having done some design education myself in some of the boot camps. IA is given one day to be taught. And therefore, anything that would be considered in any more depth they, uh, they learn some methods, they hope it works, but they don't have any underpinning. And so the surprise is, uh, if I think about the search one, is that search is considered a technology. And therefore, why would they as people who understand content and understand classification or understand the users have any way that they could influence search? And they just don't feel that they can. And when I sit there and I take Peter Morville's first diagram about search, his search system, the one he did in 2000, I think it was 2001, I sit there and I go, this is every single part of this process you can go through. And every single one of these, you can go and make a conscious decision. You can go and have that conversation with the developer and you can say, this is how I want these results to be. And they've always thought of it as a closed system. Mm. It's never been able to influence. Does that extend to other aspects of information architecture for them? Does that sort of like shine light on the idea that you can design, you can, you can deliberately design other virtual structures, which may not be visible on the screen, but are certainly, certainly influence what people see and do. Yeah. And I, I see that with, um, SEO. So I do a lot of SEO work. And I was having a conversation with someone from last from the last class. And he turned to me and said, I'm very skeptical, skeptical that anything that we do as information architects will not be SEO. Um, I'm going to say wizardry, but actually, it's not even wizardry. It's SEO bunkum. Good term. And he and he said, anything you say, and I say, okay, good IA means good SEO. So let's make really good decisions about this. And because SEO is considered this craft, these people who sit there in these SEO agencies, we don't have anything to do with it. And that element of going, okay, we can really influence, we can really make conscious decisions. And it comes into things like, and I think we're going to discuss it, primary categories so it comes down to actually making those decisions about what actually something's really about um you had mentioned a few different techniques that you teach folks that they're not necessarily familiar with um you mentioned card sorts and free listing and uh tree testing and um all of these great tools um is there one that 
you still really like doing? Is there one that you feel like is just always gets you uh, excited? I love doing tree testing. Um, and I love doing tree testing. <laughs> I love doing tree testing for a couple of reasons. Number one, and this is the other thing I teach them, which they all look at me going, oh, my God, which is my year nine science moment where I sit there and go, every time you do a test, I want you to write your aims, objectives, um, methods, um, and your all of those requirements of what you would do if you were doing a year nine science experiment, which you never really... You, and I did science at university as well. So, you know, that it comes very naturally, but I actually get them to say, what are you testing? And then if they do that and they do that with tree testing, they then sit there and go, oh, that worked. And the other thing I teach them when it comes to tree testing is we are not just validating. We are sitting there and saying, we want to use this as an exploratory technique and if it fails that, like in every other science experiment, it's another data point. And that data point basically says, I've got to do more of this. And I suspect when we do a lot of UX processes now, we put in the test that is going to validate what we've done. And then we have one round and we move forward. And for me, when I talk about my tree, uh, tree testing, I really want them to say, if this has failed, you then get to do it a number, a couple more times to get it to the point that it works. And that's that's one of my big things. I love tree testing. And I, uh, I love that you encourage your students to write out their aims and objectives uh, and that their methods. Uh, I love thinking very deliberately about the tasks and creating a balance in the tasks that accomplish different things. Uh, you know, sometimes I'm using, uh, I write a task that you that you cannot actually solve with the tree, right? That it, it's, I do that on purpose or I'll create a softball question, like something that should be ridiculously easy that it should get 100% on uh, just to see are people paying attention is something that I think easy, actually not all that easy. Uh, so I love the sort of, holistic view that one can take uh, with these tree tests as you assemble these tasks to kind of serve different purposes in meeting your uh, objectives. Yeah, and I use some of them. So when I go back to an example I used at a retailer in the UK oh, many years ago now, and I sat there and said, I've created this task because there are three objectives that the organization wanted to have answered. And these were terminology that was going around, it, nothing to do with users, going around the organisation. And it was about bras. So it was about, you know, does, does lingerie live as, as its own section or is it under women? Do, do we think of a, a, a bra for a larger size cup as a plus size or a double D plus? Do people think about a T-shirt, so a style of bra versus a size? And every single one of those could actually be put in within the one task because I knew that I could go through that and extract that information. That's awesome. What a great example. Um, uh, it's everywhere. I is everywhere. Um, so yeah, let's come to the lens. Let's talk about it. Uh, um, why don't you share which, which lens uh, we picked out and then maybe describe it in your own words. Would that be okay? Sure. So the lens is multiple homes a piece of content may fit in more than one place in the structure. 
And I think this one comes from me, and I, I was just saying um, that I taught my masterclass and recorded it yesterday morning, um, and I was talking about polyhierarchies versus double posting. And this is the multiple homes bit, which does a piece of content live in two places, can it live in two places? And I go back to my aspect of being a librarian and where classification and numerative classification turned up as a hierarchy because we needed to put a physical book in one place next to other books that were similar to it. And therefore, it was a shelf order as much as it was a classification. And you could go in and you found a book about, I'm just going to have a look and see, um, business, business management, and you would go and find all the rest of the books sitting next to you in business management, and you go, oh, I can, I can browse this, and they've all got a classification, and no one knows what a, a Dewey Decimal number is, but there it is. Lovely. Now we're in the world of the web, and you sit there and go, should a piece of content have one place that it lives, or should it be accessible from multiple places? And are there any reasons that you would actually consider it living in one place? And that's why it brings up my two bits, which is polyhierarchies versus um, double posting. So when I think about a piece of content, so a polyhierarchy is where a category <clears throat> lives in multiple places within a hierarchy. So a category, not a, per, not a, a piece of content, a category. Now, I've worked with e-commerce a lot over the last 10 years, and this happens a lot. You know, things that someone decided that this branch needed to put in, and an example from a retailer in Australia, Rompers, which is, you know, something which is actually in Australia is a term that would be used mostly for little kids, so for onesies, but the a female version of that would be a play suit. And these two get mixed up. And so people will put these two different categories, actually meaning them as synonyms, but actually put them in the same, put one in babies, rompers, babies, children wear, and one in women's wear, and maybe even girls. And suddenly you've got these categories sort of living in multiple places and you can't manage them. Now that's the problem with polyhierarchies, incredibly hard to manage. Unless you create those polyhierarchies via the creation of a set of facets and you're actually generating them. And if you then make a change to one of the facets, it will then automatically change the hierarchy. Very rarely is that used. We very rarely generate a series of a hierarchy. We mostly will create one as a very much a, a standard thing that will sit there. So don't really like polyhierarchies as a rule. We could work on it if we needed to. The, the opposite is thinking about double posting, where you sit there and say a product is, and take my example of that business book, a business book, which is a book that is about business. It could be about managing up. It could be about relationships within silos. And you could sit there and say, okay, I can classify it in three different ways. And therefore it can be placed in multiple places within a hierarchy or have multiple facets of information attached to it. And that's that multiple homes element, which is sitting there and saying, 
piece of content can be classified in multiple ways, but a category should only really live in one place of the hierarchy. That was amazing. That was like a little masterclass in uh, poly hierarchies. Um, so the intent of the lens is to sort of look at your information architecture and kind of uh, look through the lens at you know whatever work you're doing to kind of self-critique in a sense, to sort of look at it and, and ask yourself, um, how, how would I deal with this situation? Like something needs to live in, in more than one place. What are some of the things that you look for as you're designing these kinds of structures? Are you um, looking at, uh, are you, do you worry about double posting? Like do you, when you see like that's likely to happen with your structure, is that something that worries you? What are some of the things that you're looking for? Well, I don't really worry about double posting uh, because I feel as if that is actually meeting the need of the end user to say, or the number of users who sit there and say, I don't think of that in that mental model. I think of it as this different bit. And so back into, I worked with a large department store in the UK and it's my lens of being an Australian. I brought this lens and it's very rarely, I lived in the UK for 14 years, very rare that my Australian lens and my UK lens didn't connect to each other, but it didn't connect over barbecues. I'm an Australian, barbecues live outside. They are big. They're very, very similar to what you would have in the US. They're big. They're, you know, not necessarily coal, mostly gas-based. Um, in the UK, they are small. They are coal. You can buy a one that looks like the size of a sheet pan and use that as your barbecue. Um, and when we went through to find out where people were thinking about where they, uh, for me, barbecues are outdoor furniture. And when we went through our tree, uh, tree path testing, we discovered that they all thought they were cooking. They actually talked about them as being on the uh, grills that would be put on a benchtop grill. And that really made me go, okay, I don't, I brought my lens of being an Australian. And as I said, very rarely did this happen, but I brought that lens in. I think that's the bit where we need to take ourselves a little bit away and keep remembering that we are not our audience. And we have to have that conversation with ourselves and saying, where would they go? So I actually then turned and said, barbecues needs then to be placed in multiple places. It actually became a little polyhierarchical. But it, it needed, if every barbecue needed to go and live in multiple places, because that was the way that they were thinking about it. The other aspect for me is this primary versus secondary category element. And this is the decision-making that I start to go through when I teach people who are actually going through product information and trying to work out what their category should be. And the first time it hit me was when I was working in Time Out in London. And actually it was with the Paris Time, but it was a site. And we were trying to work out what the URLs would be and what advertising would be placed against an, an actual listing. And when I look at a lot of e-commerce, it could be what um, discounts are being provided over the top. So, you know, you'll do a discount and they say it's 30% off all accessories. And if something's not classified as primary category as an accessory, it won't get the 30% off. So you sit there and go, primary categories are not necessarily someplace that it's a, a placement. So we want things to be found in multiple places, but it is used for SEO for URLs. 
it is used for advertising and it is used for things like discounts. And therefore, when every time I go through it with someone who's classifying, I sit there and go, you're making a decision which is going to have all the rest of these implications. So think about those implications when you are creating both your the way that you think about the product information that you're going to classify it. So have something called primary category, which will then be used and realize people want to get through it in multiple places, but you as the cataloger or as the product information person are making that decision. You've been uh, tweeting and posting to LinkedIn about something called career architecture, and I have not done my homework. So I would love to know what that is. And in a very self-serving way, I'm going to ask you to think about how does a information architect think about their career? That is to say, what when they sort of bring an information architecture mindset to looking at careers, what does that reveal to them? Yep. Okay. So firstly, a little plug, career architecture is my book that I released on Thursday. Oh, as an e-book and in another couple of weeks, the print book will come out. It is the process that I have been using with people I've been doing career coaching with for the last 18 months on how they go use a IA process to understand your current state analysis of who they are and what they are and what they do. Uh, do stakeholder interviews with the people in their life, be it family and friends or their coworkers understand what their life considerations are. So almost like your tech constraints and then what their positioning is. So what is the strategy? Where have they put themselves right at this moment versus where they want to be? And then the second bit is the career strategy where they sit there and say, what is my vision? What are the directions that support that vision? And how do I make a decision on which direction is the right for me right now? then do a project plan for positioning and networking uh, and the next actions. So that's career architecture in a nutshell. That is very cool. What uh, has it influenced how you think about architecture? I mean, it sounds like you're taking IA thinking and, and encouraging folks to apply it to their uh, life and their livelihood. Yeah. Has that sort of had this kind of bounce back effect of sort of like, thinking about IA itself differently? Well, I, I'm doing these two in parallel. So I, I have another book in me, and you as a writer will know this, another book in me, which I started in December, and I sat down with um, a mentor and I was describing it to me and she said, you're, you're an architect, you're an information architect and a career architect. And I went, ah, yeah, I am. Yeah, okay, cool. And she said to me, the book that you need to write is not the book that you're thinking about and that you had 18,000 words of. It is the book about career architecture because that lays the foundation of where you want to move forward. Because the book that I want to do is, is called Grown, which is how do we as grown um, people who have 20 plus years within the industry actually work out where we want to be. So Grown will come. So, yeah, you're looking at me, Dan. <laughs> Well, I just, I feel like you've got a really good play on words uh, happening uh, there. Because when you said grown, I thought you meant like grown, but you mean grown. I mean grown, like grown up. Yes. 
But, yes. but these two things in my experience go hand in hand. So <laughs> yes, yes. So career architect. So when she said to me, this is the book that you need to write, so there we go, okay, this is the book. I think, and I can't stop being an information architect. I will always structure and organize, whether it is structuring and organizing things or it's structuring and organizing people or structuring and organizing groups. So I run many groups because there you go. That is that is my mother, Ellen Hanley's uh, legacy to me, as she has a little bit of her, she organized the Ford Street Ladies and she organized the Irish Women's Do for the last 40 years. And therefore, when I sit there and I am organizing consultant therapy, I have that moment of going, yes, this is my mother. And yes, I am taking on her mantle. So I can't stop myself to be that. And it also makes me realize that this goes back into my library school stuff. It goes back and says, what do I use every single day still when it, from doing that master's and librarianship 27 years ago and that is that classification and that organization and thinking about how we can organize information for access bags that was awesome i think we will leave it there thank you so much for joining me i really appreciate it absolute pleasure thank you dan